We're in our series, Samuel, Who Do You Think You Are? My first question is, and I'm just, it's kind of an, yeah, it's a question, I'm asking you a question. And it's a concern, and it's a concern that I'm feeling uh, for me. How are you getting on with the world of passwords? How's everybody getting on with the world of passwords? I feel like I've reached a point in my life where my mental capacity is endangering my internet cyber security, if you know what I mean. I feel like I can't, I've got some nodding heads, that's an encouragement, at least to me. I feel like I can't have any more memorable moments to draw upon. There are no more left. I'm scratching around for another password. It's a constant endeavor um, to, to keep myself safe online. And something occurred to me as I thought about this safety search um, that sort of made it clear how vulnerable I am. I've been robbed. My physical house has been robbed three times. Um, and not, not where I live right now. My kids are looking at me. Not where I live right now, but in my lifetime. So don't panic. Don't panic too much. Panic a little bit because it's for the story. But don't panic too much. Uh, but it's been robbed three times. And the police, when they came, said to me, uh, as I sort of wondered what I could do, they just said to me, well, it was just an opportunistic, um, unplanned, low-level, probably drunk criminal that has got into my house, which made me think, if a low-level, unplanned, slightly drunk, opportunistic, low-level criminal can get into my house, then the cyber robots are pretty much certainly going to get into my phone. Do you know what I mean? That's what I thought as I thought about this. We are under a constant endeavor to keep ourselves safe, to keep ourselves secure. We are always feeling the threat, are we? Always feeling the threat. How do we keep our little world safe? How do we keep our loved ones more safe? I was really sad uh, to listen. As I, every time I put on the news, I'm quite sad. But the Palestine-Israeli conflict, as I heard about that, I heard two stories from either side. Both, um, both were guys, both were soldiers, and both were saying, not only have we never felt secure, and not only do we feel secure now, insecure now, but we can't imagine a day down the line in our lifetimes when we will ever be in a position of security. We are always, always looking to make ourselves secure. The question that we asked last week is the question we asked this week. Why does it matter? There was talk of new moons. There was ancient people that we'd never heard of. Why does this text matter to us? It was quite a long reading. Let me thank you for staying with the reading board. You read it really well. The story is about David and he's on the run. He's scratching around, looking at how he can make himself more secure. He says in the text that he, David just feels like he's always, and this really resonated with me, I think it's a, it's a word for today, he felt like he was always a day from death. He was insecure all of the time. And yet, when you read through the Psalms, and when you read the underscore of this text, he's got an inner resilience, confidence, hope, inner security. He's got this outer security bubble that exists for him. What on earth is that? The text that we're looking at, one of the things that is important to remember is that it's not just about them and their story. This is what the Bible does when it speaks to us. It speaks to us and our story, our wrestle for security. It's as much about that. What has it got to tell us 
about the security that we need, that we scrape around for. The reason it really matters, I think, is because as I look at the world, no matter how much progress we make, no matter how many answers we get, whether it's our tech, whether it's our homes, like me, whether it's our future finances, whether it's our future self, future well-being, whether it's our mental health, or whether it's our loved ones, we are always looking for ways to make ourselves more secure. We are always looking out on the world that we live in and saying, this level of security is not enough. I want more security. I'm not happy with where I'm at. Maybe I'm shouting into the wind, but that's how it feels for me. That's, what, that's the world I see around me. What does God, what does faith, what does this ancient Bible story have to offer a bunch of people who live in an insecure world? What's the story? What is the, what is this secret? Or what is the meaning of this test? What is this secret that David has found? Where does he get? I think there's a question that, that comes out of it. Where does David get his security? Given that there's just, like, I don't know if, how much you were listening to the story, there's just absolute chaos going on around about him. And his only ally, and this is sort of the key to the text, we're going to be looking at the depth and strength of this relationship. His only ally is blooded to Saul. His only hope of security is blooded to Saul. Jonathan. The only kind of way he's going to be safe is what Jonathan finds out in this investigation and what he tells him. He is so vulnerable. What is his security? There's two verses that speak of his security in there. And it's, I think it, it's not what we're expecting. Is it because like, he's super agile? Is it because they've got a really strong connection? Let me read out some verses which I think speak of the strength of his security, where he finds it. Verse 8 in the text. There's two verses that I think speak of it. And I kind of like blink and you miss them. I don't know if you noticed them in the text, but here's, here's where the security comes from. Here's what makes it a different thing to all the ways we might find security elsewhere. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? It's a covenant before the Lord that he's got. It says it again in verse 16. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call on David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as himself. We live in a world... So what is a covenant? Covenant is a is a promise. It's God's promise. How do you feel about promises at the moment? How do you feel about the promises that you hear? Be honest. I think we live in a world where the idea of a promise we keep pretty lightly. We might have had promises from our parents. I've made a few promises that were never going to be kept. We kept promises from our bosses. We get promises, loads of promises from our government. I think we, ha we have a really light idea of, of the concept of promise and covenant. When somebody says, I'm going to promise you this, often, because we've become cynical, we go, oh yeah, right, whatever. When God makes a promise, when the Bible talks about God making promises, it is completely different from that. From start to finish, when you start to hear about God talking about making a covenant, it is not a momentary thing. So many of our promises that we make feel like they're kind of in the moment. 
I'll just say it to appease this moment. When God makes a promise, he takes it serious. He gets so serious about promises with us. He doesn't let us off lightly at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. no. Don't make an oath lightly. Don't take a vow lightly. Why does he say this? Because he holds them so tightly. He's serious about promises. Found a lovely verse in Peter that talks about the way that God keeps promises and contrasts them perhaps with the way that we keep promises. God is not slow in keeping promises, as some understand it, but patient, not wanting anyone to perish. God makes promises in eons past. When we make promises a couple of days past, we've already forgotten about them. God makes promises eons past, and he holds them so tightly. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to love you. I'm going to build a people. I'm going to forgive you. I promise I'll forgive you. If you turn to me, I'll forgive you. And when he makes a promise, it's a covenant promise. He means it. He's not slow in keeping promises. As we look at the promises of God, we maybe think maybe he's forgotten about all these. God the lesson, one of the big lessons of the story in the Bible is that God keeps working away at people who forget about his promises, who don't live inside of his promises. And he tears into them, he lovingly persuades them, and he finds a way to keep his promises. That is why we have security. You can think, if you want, of the heavy eyes of Jesus as he made a promise to his, his disciples on the night of the Last Supper. And they took the cup together. They took the covenant together. Jesus is saying, I promise. Like God promises. I promise this will change things around. I promise this will save you. I promise I won't let go of you. This is why, this is what we're hanging on to. When we think about security, this is a different kind of security than I think the world offers, than we look for daily. This text draws us to this idea that David has, even though the world's chaotic, can have confidence, can have security, because he's met with Jonathan, who surely is going to betray him to his own blood, right? But they've made a covenant. They've entered a covenant relationship with the Holy God, and he says, that's going to keep me safe. So I want to talk just really briefly about what that means for us. I think it's a lovely, awesome thing. That's what we're doing as Christians. We're saying that promise that Jesus made, those promises that God made, we've seen enough evidence in the Bible, in the text, in our lives to say he's keeping his promises. I'm going to trust him now in the face of the chaos. I want to talk just a little bit about what it means, means for us. So there's a few things I think we see. So just um, have a look at verse 12. Uh, through to 15. The first thing I think that it sees in the story is that it opens up new levels of faithfulness. It opens the door. It pushes us towards. It gives us the opportunity to reach new levels. Maybe that doesn't excite you very much. The idea of it's kind of a boring concept, isn't it? The idea of being more faithful. It does, it's not boring here. It's beautiful here. 12 to 15. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. Listen out for the love that is shown. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But in, if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan 
be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If you just think for a second about the cultural norms that are expected in these times. And then let this next sentence wash over you. I'll tell you what the cultural norms are after. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I, I may not be killed. It's that text up there. Yeah, keep your eyes on this text because it's helpful. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of this earth. The thing that you need to know about this text, and I th I'm, not, I'm not an avid watcher of Game of Thrones, but I, am a, I try and read history. And anytime you look back in history at the royals across the globe, what you realize is when, one, when, it, when it changes dynasty, when one family inherits the throne and another family is deposed, you've got to kill them all off. David's been promised the throne. What they're talking about is the next king of Israel. The family's going to change. It's the social norm. I mean, it's, praise the Lord, it's not the social norm anymore. We don't kill everybody. But if you look in your history books, up until quite recently, actually, we've off with their heads. It's been one of that. It's been that kind of story, hasn't it? We've ceased, we've killed off the family that were previously enthroned. So this, what should this do to the relationship between David and Jonathan? You can think, if you want, of a Palestinian and an Israeli, two school kids who have been friends for a couple of years. Can they be friends now? How easy is it going to be for them to be friends now? It toxifies it. It separates it out. It splits them up. But in this text, this covenant means something different happens. There's a different mentality about this covenant. David has got culture-breaking love coming his way from Jonathan. Jonathan says, I'll make sure you're safe. That's what he's saying in the text. I'll make sure you're safe. He wishes for God's favor on his family. I hope you get the same joy that my father Saul's had from God. Even though, if he gets that, it's going to mean death for him. And he asks, this is, this is the bit. He asks David something just outrageous, really. He says, when you get on that throne, what I want from you, what I'm asking for from you, verse 15, is I want you to break all the cultural norms. I want you to honor this covenant with me. And I want you to look after my family and my family's family into the future. I don't know if you know the rest of this story. I don't know if you know how the descendants peel off, but it's really beautiful. Well, it's not beautiful at the start because Saul dies in a bloody way. And then Jonathan dies in quite a bloody way. And then the descendants of both of them just kind of dissipate. We don't hear a lot, but they don't dissipate altogether. There's a lad called Mephibosheth, not easy to say, who's ill, got dropped at birth, doesn't keep well, like languishing in life, and David seeks him out, and he brings him to his table, and he cares for him, and he looks after him, and he honors the covenant. He goes beautifully, I think, above and beyond the cultural norms. One of the loveliest stories, and I feel like this story is so lovely, I kind of need it. Whenever I hear about uh, Mr. Sinfield and Mr. Burroughs, I don't know if you're following their story, my, I always have a bit more life in me. I always have a bit more belief in humanity. There's a lovely scene 
of Kevin Sinfield holding Rob Burroughs over his, forgive me if you're not familiar with the story, um, uh, Rob Burroughs has MND, Kevin Sinfield, they used to play together at Leeds Rhinos, he looks out for him, he's continued to look out for him, it's a beautiful story, and they are united by, they reminded me so much actually of David and Jonathan, their friendship is so tight, it's almost empathic, empathic. I'm not even going to try and say that word again. You know what I'm trying to get at, don't you? Rob Burroughs says something really lovely just the other day. Um, he looks up at Kevin Sinfield as best he can and he says, and he means it, which is the remarkable thing. He says, he knows I'd do the same for him. It's an outrageous thing to be able to say. And yet you look at it and you go, I'm pretty sure that's true actually because they are united by a bond. When I see that story, I look at that story and I think, man, does our world need love like that? Doesn't that change things? Don't we need covenantal love? Don't we need love that goes beyond the cultural norms? This, I think, is where this passage takes us. This is where living inside of the promises of God takes us. Having this security over us, having this bond Having God join us together gives us that extra level of uh, fidelity that we wouldn't ordinarily have. I think as Christians, if you're a Christian, I don't know if you're a Christian or not, one of my thoughts about what God calls people to do is he calls us, and I think it's really clear in this text, he called us to ordinary acts of fidelity. He calls us to be really, really faithful with each other. And God enables this in us, I think. He enables it when we see his love. We see it manifest on the cross, don't we? But we see and we feel his love in us. We love, why? What capacity do we have to act with real fidelity? What capacity do we have to be extra faithful? We love because we are loved. We've got something to give because we have been given. We've got forgiveness in our bones, not because we can muster it ourselves, but because we know that we have been forgiven. We understand our security. We are enabled when we receive God's security, when we live in the promises of God. Next thing I think we see is that he asks something of us. A covenant relationship is not just a one-way street. If you've been married or you are married, or you've got probably any kind of serious relationship, you'll know how these things work. It's not just a one-way street. The story shows us that we are asked to do something. Something is asked of us. Verse 24 and 25. I want, it's, it's a scene. So there's a whole, I think it goes, where's it goes? 14, 24 to 31 is, a, is like a scene from a film, as I see it. If, if, you would have, if you would have heard this story firsthand, you'd have been sat around the fire and you would, you would have been shown this and felt this. There is an empty chair. It's the story of an empty chair. It's, it's the royal table, and it's the story of the empty chair. Verse 24 says, So David hid in the field when the new moon feast came. So he's not there. The king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall. That's where Saul is. Opposite Jonathan, that's where Jonathan is. And Abner, the rock-hard guy, sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Then, as the story goes on, Jonathan reveals his affections for David and not Saul. He makes his excuses, and Saul 
I don't know if you were paying attention to the reading, but Saul flips out in the most fabulous, I can enjoy a good insult sometimes. Saul really flips out in a fabulous way. He says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't, it's a good insult, isn't it? It's you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and of the mother who bore you? The story starts with David C. Empty. Jonathan reveals his, his affections and acquaintances, and the scene ends with Jonathan C. Empty too. That's the point. This is Saul's table. This is the royal table, and there's two people not there. They've left Saul's present kingdom. They've sacrificed their seats at Saul's present kingdom because they believe in a better one. Do you see the point? It was going to cost them something. It was going to ask something of them. Their covenant that they had with each other, the covenant that they shared with God, the kingdom that they believed in, was going to mean that they couldn't sit in this exalted position anymore. They were going to have to give that up. Um, I think an extra special mention to Jonathan. When I read about him, he doesn't seem to put a foot wrong. Looks to me like he would have been a good king. He seems like he's a godly man. Seems like a good guy. Doesn't do a lot wrong. Would have been a good king. And yet what does he do? Because of God's word, because of God's will, he walks away. He sacrifices his place. You might say in the words of Jesus that he seeks first God's kingdom. He seeks that first. And he trusts, even though Saul was going to say, you're, you've had it. He trusts that all the things, this is what Jesus says, all the things that we need, all the things that we might think make us secure will be added unto us in time. He takes up those words literally. He leaves, you might say, everything. Christ-like. Might be pushing the point too much, I don't know. He leaves everything that he had for the sake of the kingdom. Here's the point. If, it's, if we believe, which I think is one of the things that we say we believe if we're Christians, if we believe that God's kingdom is coming, if we believe his kingdom's coming and it's not our kingdom that's coming, then it's not all about making our way. It's not all about us making our mark, making our way. It's about us making a way for God. It's not all about us making our way. If, if his kingdom's coming, if his kingdom's what the world needs, if we believe that, then our life, the meaning to our lives, is not just about us making our way in this world. And we say, man, it's got to be. Look at the world that we live in. We say with Saul, you're stupid to think anything different. You're ruined if you think anything different. This is the message that will ring in our ears if you, if you reflect on the sermon as you go home. And yet God's word would say, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It might well cost us something and it might well look stupid. Uh, when I was up at Bible college, which was like eight or nine years ago now, I was inspired by the theologians and some of the teaching that I got. That was really, really great. But the most inspiring uh, night of my week, maybe I've said this before, I don't think I have, it was on Friday nights when we went to the soup kitchen, little church in Motherwell. And I saw a bunch of semi-retired people who gave up their Friday nights every week 
to put God's kingdom first. And it was most of the time it was a pretty rotten job. It was hard work. It was selfless and sacrificial. And for a lot of the time you would and when I first got there I thought, oh this is stupid. But it was putting God's kingdom first. They said to themselves, to push the analogy further, my chair on my couch is going to be free on Friday night. There's going to be nobody in it. I'm going to give it up and I'm going to be here. And the truth of it was, that little soup kitchen, one of the best things to happen in Motherwell. Similar to the uh, Rob Burrow story, it gave the town life. My big wrestling match for thinking of myself less. Again, this is, uh, this is one of those occasions where I dip into being overly honest. My mind is, forgive me, always thinking about me. <laughs> always thinking about me. Daydreaming about my successes. It's true. Annoyed when I don't get uh, success that should come my way. And God's word would challenge me, I think, to say, just drop that a bit. Stop f- focusing on yourself all the time. Can you park that for a bit? God's word would say, you'd be far better for it. <laughs> Covenant life asks us to drop ourselves. Last thing I think we see in the story, the last scene is fantastic, and you'll notice that we've missed bits for the sake of time, but verse 41 and 42 is the last scene. And I think it explains where we're at in terms of security for life. This is what I think the Bible says that we can expect. It will look like this. David's been waiting out in the field. Jonathan has said to him, I'll signal whether it's safe or not to come back. And he fires the arrows over. Maybe you can remember it as boy, you read it out. And then the boy comes out, and then he comes out, and the signal is, Saul's gone crackers. It's not safe. I'm going to protect you. And then they have this meeting, this last sort of meeting. And it is a last, if you follow the story through over the next couple of weeks, you'll see it. It's a last meeting, and it's, it's, an odd, it's an odd meeting. It says sort of two things. There's tears, there's weeping, because they know this is final. They know that it's final. They know that the rest of the story is going to be chaotic. David's been exposed. Jonathan can't hang around with him anymore, almost. This is the last meeting. It's sad. There is a departure. There's an end. But at the same time, Jonathan can say, there's a piece to this. This is the story of our security. This is what Jesus says. This is what the Bible would tell us. This is the hope that we have. The world, it's not, it's not the story of our security. is not, you're going to wake up increasingly and everything's going to be fine and you're going to look in the road, the world's going to get increasingly rosy. I don't think that that's what the Bible says. I think the Bible says, in the chaos... And this is what I get, particularly when I read David's Psalms. In the chaos, you can still know my absolute peace. Why? Because you hang on to the promises that I make. Here's the strength of our security. The strength of our security is how tightly we hold on to the promises that God gives. When we look in the eyes of Jesus at the Last Supper on the cross, and he says, you can trust me. When we see the stories of the Old Testament about God's love for his people, the way he hung on to his people, he says, you can trust me. I don't make promises 
forgive me, like we make promises, you make promises, I make promises. I don't make promises like that. I make promises and I hold them tight. I'm not going to drop you. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm going to forgive you. We will continue, I will continue to grasp for security. The world will look chaotic. It will continue to look chaotic. But, as in the story, there is a sign. There is a love that is shown. There is a friend who comes, even though he doesn't have to. That means there is a promise that we can trust him.